Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about the stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and there are no prizes for guessing this week what the stuff that matters might be. Yes, another amazing week of golf at Augusta National. The Masters Tournament somehow seems to deliver each and every year. 2013 was no exception. As always, plenty of storylines out of Georgia. Everything from an Australian finally breaking the Masters hoodoo to a Chinese teenager making the cut and world headlines thanks to a slow play penalty. Little did we know at the time that that ruling would be the least controversial of this week's Masters. The world number one Tiger Woods involved in an incident that is still being discussed on internet forums and chat rooms around the globe. Joining me today to break down all this and more from a thrilling week at Augusta National is author and blogger Jeff Shackelford and from here in Australia our own course architect, writer and player Mike Clayton. And Clayton, I wanted to start with you. You wrote a beautiful story in the uh, in the age uh, in today's paper about this. Uh, it has been a big moment for Australia. It, it was such an eloquently written piece. I wanted to uh, to start by just reading out the last couple of paragraphs of that, and then I wanted to get you to, to tease out some of the issues that you mentioned. Uh, so here we go. So they moved the plunging long par four tenth hole, and after two perfect shots from each, it came to the putters. Cabrera barely missed, leaving it to the Queenslander and his oft-questioned stroke. It is a putter barely able to hold its head up in polite society, and it is soon to be banned. And aside from the putt on the 72nd hole, it had done little on Sunday to earn its place in the bag. Then, over a few seconds and four tortuous paces, that putter and its wielder became a part of Australian sporting history. Scott's ball ran perfectly into the middle of the hole and surely made this a day that will be measured alongside those made famous by John Bertrand and Cadell Evans. That's pretty big stuff that you're, that you're saying there, Clates, and I suppose all of us here in Australia probably feel it, but g- give people a sense of, of why this particular win was so important to Australia. Well, it's been the, that and the Tour de France were really the two events that Australians hadn't won, aside from the 100 metres in the Olympics and the World Cup in soccer, which we're never going to win. <laughs> so they were the two great mountains, and no one ever imagined that someone would win the Tour de France before Greg Norman would win the U.S. Masters because it was taken for granted that at some point after his debut in 1981 that Greg would win. So unlike the rest of the world, which kind of watch the golf in the afternoon or at night, Australians are used to waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning and going to school and going to work heartbroken about the latest trauma we've endured at Augusta. And two years ago it happened again. I mean, Charles Swartzel made four birdies in a row and beat Scott and Day, who were there again. So it's this thing that, it got bigger and bigger because we couldn't win it, and we'd had so many guys who'd we'd had eight guys who'd finished second or eight second place finishes, and so it sort of became this holy grail. And when Cadell Evans won the Tour de France, there was this one great sporting event that we'd never won. So, and every year we were tortured, and when Cabrera hit that great shot to the last hole, it was like we've seen this movie before. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. We did. How was it? What was it like there, Shaq? Because of course, Scott, Scott, we think of him as one of ours, being Australians. But golf's a global sport. He's pretty popular in the US too, isn't he? I mean, he's one of the world's very top players. Certainly, uh, very high profile in uh, in the golf world in the states. It seems from the outside to be a, to have been a popular win over there. What was your take on the ground about Adam Scott's victory? Well, he was certainly a popular win in the press center, uh, based on the loud cheer that went up uh, every time he made a putt. Uh, I, I never really. I was busy writing a story, so I never really f- quite figured out 
what kind of roar those roars those were because it was there was no way they were playing another hole in the playoff. It was too dark, and so uh, that that may have been a cheer of just uh, thank God this is over. But I I think it's more of uh, Adam's popularity, the fact that he's uh, uh, he's just he's just a kind man. Um, he's he's very good uh, if you approach him uh, and and talk to him. And and give him a chance to kind of uh, put his thoughts out. Uh, he's not the the uh, you know he's not Jeff Ogilvy with the the amazing one-liners. But if you give him a chance to think through the answers, he's fantastic. And of course, so so press loves that, and the fans love him. Uh, you know, he's athletic, good-looking. Uh, he's you know he's just everything. And uh, Cabrera's one-one. Adam has had a heartbreak, so obviously that is another reason people uh, uh, were, were rooting for him. And uh, it, it was it was a just it was just like last year. It was it was kind of a dud, and then it exploded there at the end in in lousy weather. And it was uh, boy, I just started looking through some of the photographs, and I, I thought, oh boy, what a shame! If this isn't going to be a good year for photos, but uh, there's some already iconic. Uh, images from from this with the umbrellas and the rain and the darkness it's it's really exciting yeah the extraordinary one of him uh standing with his arms out it almost looked yeah quite spooky from behind with the rain falling all the flashes of the cameras it's almost uh could be the poster for the rio olympics it matches that thing that yeah. at the top of the top yeah. of the hill there doesn't it you, you you touched on it there shack he really is he'd be impossible to buy for at christmas adam scott when he's got everything hasn't he? he's got good looks he's had the beautiful girlfriend he's got the incredible golf swing the amazing this was really all he lacked wasn't it? there was almost a sense of that and you, you you mentioned that i suppose with the the open last year what happened with Els holding that putt on the last that this was a guy who just seemingly has everything but was, there was just a little bit missing and for it to be the masters as an australian shack was much made of that in america certainly it's a big deal to us here but to, does America understand the importance of that to us here in Australia? I, I don't know, but we certainly did in the media center. That we were cognizant of, of how important this was. Uh, I, I have a I have a feeling the Masters Augusta patron type uh, does understand it because a lot of those people have been there and they saw some of the well, they saw Adam's uh, heartbreaking loss uh, a couple of years ago, and so they they know and everybody knows about the Open Championship last year, and so karmically. I think people are pretty well aware that uh, this was this was key because uh, uh, you have another one of these, and then then you start to get into that uh, uh, he's he's cursed kind of thing, uh, and so it was uh, it, it was just a fantastic win. Uh, Clayton, of course, um, we've all been expecting Adam to win, mate, and we do this to players, don't we? Ah, oh, he'll win a bunch of majors before his year. He'll win a bunch before his career's over. He'll win a bunch. Of course, they can't all win the bunch of majors. There's not enough majors to go around. Are you surprised by how long it's taken Adam Scott to get here, or does it really just point to how difficult these things actually are to win? Well, they're hard to win, obviously, and there aren't many of them, as you said. But, yeah, I'm surprised. I first played with him. He was an amateur, and... Uh, we played the Victorian Open. He shot 64 around a re- Cranbourne, a reasonably difficult course. And I remember driving out and I called Tony Rosenberg, who ran the Heineken Classic in Perth. I said, you've got to invite this kid to your tournament in a month. This kid's only unbelievable. And of course, he didn't invite him. And Greg did. Greg invited him to play the Greg Norman tournament. I remember that. That's right. And, and Ken Brown was – I saw Ken Brown in Perth. I said, you've got to go and watch this kid play next week. He's not here this week. He's an amateur. He's going to play next week. Go and do yourself a favor. Go and watch him play. I walked onto the range on Friday afternoon, and Ken Brown walked up. I said, "I just watched this kid. I just watched him play the back nine. He shot sixty-three. He's unbelievable." Mm. So here was so here was this kid who everyone knew about thirteen years ago. 
he was he was an extraordinary player. He beat Aaron Bailey to win the Australian Junior by 15 shots when they were both sort of 15 or 16. And ha- having seen that all those years ago, it was unimaginable that it would take this long for him to win a major. But he was con- he was conspicuously poor in them for a long time, and it's only in recent years that he's really started to challenge for them. Mm. He had a brilliant start, didn't he? I think his first start at the Masters in 02, he finished ninth um, and then really wasn't, as you say, until 2011 uh, yeah. that he was kind of kind of sighted again. Clates, it used to be that golfers matured in their 30s. That's what we always used to say. And then Tiger Woods came along. That all apparently changed. Then we had all these 20-somethings and late teen players, you know, these guys were going to win, they well, were going to do everything. Is, is it still the reality, in fact, that maybe golfers do mature in their 30s? Adam's 32 now. Um, should be his prime under the old school. Is it maybe just that the reality is that hasn't changed? We just thought it had. Well, I don't think there are any rules. I mean, Nicholas was 22 when he won the Open. Jerry Pate was 22. Seve was 19 when he almost won the British Open. I mean, Greg was a kid when he was – so, uh, you know, uh, and Watkins and Crenshaw were winners at, in their early 20s. So I think they've always been terrific young players in their 20s who are capable of winning majors. So, But – yeah, the conventional wisdom is that you play your best golf between when you're 30 and 35 or whatever. And and he's got, I mean, Adam's got, I mean, it really all depends what they do with this putter. I mean, I mean, he's only got two years left with this thing, assuming they ban it. So that's really what's going to be the, the long-term influence on his career will be how he manages the transition back to the short putter. Mm. But but his putter didn't win it for him this week. He he wasn't very good on the greens. No, that's right. Exactly. He wasn't like he made everything, was it? It certainly uh, certainly wasn't the case. Shack, was there any talk about that? I mean, I don't want to uh, sort of bring the whole thing down with the the putter debate. But was there any talk? Of course, I think that's what, four out of the last six majors uh, long putters. I mean, I never even thought about it whilst the thing was unfolding today. But down the track a bit, uh, was there any talk about that? Does it influence anything with the, the putter debate? Oh, oh, of course there was. And uh, I think most of us, though, were just so caught up in the excitement of the win that it was, and I certainly on my website have not uh, tried to go there yet, and I don't want to, but eventually we're going to have to discuss it. And I'm already, I've been pondering whether this will um, expedite the case for a ban or perhaps uh, convince people that we need to uh, step back and maybe grandfather in people like adam or grandfather this uh maybe you know we have a we have a piece in uh, the last week's golf world here that i i wrote and with uh survey work by craig dolch and myself and we surveyed players and you'll 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 never guess it was jeff ogilvy who offered the best uh, solution i felt and, and it's been something that's really been been bugging me uh, as we watched adam go and win and this this will be a very popular win uh he suggested that the institute this ban in in eight or he said ten years. I think eight is more realistic because it fits with the time of the uh, the rule book resets, which would be uh, eight years. But uh, he suggests you do that to allow these people who've built their career around it uh, to fairly play out the peak years of their career while also discouraging a young player. And so that was just solution. And I, I think it's actually something that could come into play here because I, I i think this is going to be very difficult to push through when somebody like him wins and more importantly you look at the stats uh he was tied for 39th and putting for the week i've now forgotten the number because it's been a quick turnaround but his putts each day were i don't know he had one day at 32 putts he had a 30 putt day uh, he, he had a lot of putts he did he didn't really uh 
he didn't really putt that well, as Clay's pointed out. Yeah, I, I want to get off this topic because, as you say, it is. I know, yeah. Time, but, it's, it's, but that is a, yeah. an interesting. It's an interesting solution that Ogilvy throws up, isn't it? And I just wanted to make this point, Shaq, because I've been pondering this after we spoke with Ted Bishop a couple of weeks ago. I really do sympathise with those who have built a career around a piece of equipment that is completely mm-hmm. legal to suddenly be told that's it, you can't use it as of just three years' time. There is some. Un- there's something fundamentally unfair about that, isn't it? I, I, that that and so that solution, perhaps takes care of that problem, as you say, grandfather it out of the game. Back to uh, back to the more happy stuff. Clates, of course, um, one of the first things that Adam Scott said uh, when he went in, into Butler Cabin and he was interviewed by Jim Nance, and good Lord, what an amazing thing to consider that is, an Australian being interviewed by Jim Nance in Butler Cabin. I thought, <laughs> thought I might never see it, but he talked almost immediately about the influence of Greg Norman, and I know you've got a couple of, you've had a couple of questions about this on Twitter this evening. You've got some thoughts on that, the, the influence of Greg Norman, but perhaps that, you know, there's some others that have had an input into, you know, the, the generation of successful Australian touring pros that we've had for the last 15 or 20 years. Just talk a little bit about that for me. Well, clearly the influence of Greg was big. He brought kids out to watch the game and he publicised it. But my generation, that was Peter Thompson who did that. I was inspired to play by Peter Thompson and he was inspired by, I'm not sure who, Norman Von Neider or Joe Kirkwood. Or, so there's always been a passing down of the generations of golf in Australia. But all the inspiration is fine, but without someone who can teach kids to play well, then it's no use. And I mean, I give... As much or more credit to, I mean, in Melbourne, Dale Lynch and Steve Bannon, who started the Victorian Institute of Sport, with the aim of sending players to America. No one had ever gone to America, really, mm-hmm. apart from our true superstar, David Graham and Newton and Shearer and Devlin and Crampton. But, you know, they said there's no reason why we can't teach players how to play well enough to compete in America. So they took Steve Bannon, um, Robert Allenby, as a 15-year-old. Appleby was 15 or 16. Later, well, Badley was 13 when he started working with him. Jeff was 16 or 17 or 18. And they gave these guys the skills they needed to compete. So so I think, and, and in Queensland, Gary Edwin was teaching guys like Rod Pampling and Peter Lonard. Um, you know, there were teachers around the country who, who were really giving kids the skills they needed to play in America. So what was Greg's, was perhaps the, was perhaps the inspiration. I think, as I said, as important or more important were the guys who taught this generation of kids to go and play in America and, and to give them the skills and the confidence they needed to do it. You need both, don't you, Clates? You've got to have the one that inspires, but then, as you say, you've got to back it up with the tools to actually perform the job. Each on their own is probably useless, but put them together and you get a pretty potent mix, don't you, as the success yeah. of our players would suggest. You know, at one stage there, I think we were only second to America with the number of players on the US tour. Um, you know, it was... Uh, was Australia, of course, um, the playoff is a two a two horse race, Shaq, and it seems to me that a little bit like uh, Ernie and uh, Adam last year at the Open, which I remember discussing with you guys at the time, as just being a fabulous ad for the sport and dignity, and and you know a wonderful ad for what sportsmanship should be. I felt this playoff with Adam and Angel Cabrera was about was was pretty much the same. There's a wonderful moment on the second playoff hole when Cabrera gave Scott a thumbs up after he hit his approach shot, a good pro- approach shot in there. Had a really nice atmosphere. It appeared on the telly. Did you get that sense there as well? I mean, it was played in the ideal spirit. It seemed to me. Uh, oh, absolutely. And now, of course, at that point, I'm watching on television in the press center, so everybody was noticing that. Though and the 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 bond between he and Cabrera was pretty apparent that, that having played on Presidents Cup teams that they they get on well and and uh, I thought that was really neat that 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 came through in the playoff because it's it's not an easy situation 
Christian and Cabrera was uh, class all the way. Uh, I think you can. You, I think it was pretty obvious to everybody that that uh, he uh, was was playing the role of a distinguished uh, former champion who was thrilled to be there again and and respectful of. I mean, what can you do when when somebody uh, makes a putt like that? It's just uh, it, but 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 applauded. It was so impressive and. Uh, and I'd be curious uh, what what uh, you two think, and plates in particular. Uh, I, I again, I'm just up, so I haven't started reading. But uh, I know Stevie Williams gave a couple of interviews. But but what role he played in all this? Uh, because in the press conference after, Adam just blew us away with a story about the winning putt. That uh, he he really was so dark he was having trouble seeing the line. And and Stevie, yeah. Uh, he asked Stevie for a rare read, and he gave him a very different read than Adam saw, which is uh, pretty amazing. And Adam just trusted it, and boom, it made it. And I'm, I'm curious what you think uh, Stevie's role has been. Clates well, uh, is the man to ask here because I'm pretty sure Clates uh, his development didn't uh, didn't Stevie guide you to a a, one, a a tournament victory in the space of just a week? Didn't he take yeah. you from an also ran to a winner in just a week? And, and back to an also run. Yeah, he, he did the first week he carried for me. I won. Um, I think he's a tremendous guy. Not the most popular guy out there amongst his contemporaries, but. You know, I've, my experience with Steve was he was a fantastic caddy. Under the pressure, he could, you know, if, if you asked a question, you would always get a good answer and a firm answer. And I know Steve told me the story of the putt Tiger had at Medina in 1999 on the 71st hole when Tiger read it straight and Steve read it, read, read it left lip. And he said, trust me, Tiger, it's the left lip. And you watch that putt from behind which really was a tournament-winning putt for Tiger. It went at the left lip for almost all its way and then just broke right into the middle of the hole. So uh, under pressure, Ray Floyd said about Steve Williams, is the only caddy I've ever had who never choked. <laughs> so when you get in the playoff at Augusta on the, on the 74th hole of the tournament and it's dark and you're not sure and the guy says, it's two inches outside the right or whatever he said, and it, if it's the right call, that's where he earns his money. Yeah. I mean... Brett Ogle said on the radio tonight that a good caddy's worth eight shots a week. I don't think that's right, but you know, I think that if he's, you know, if he makes the right call at the, at the right time, it only needs to be worth one shot a week. And that's exactly you know. right. Of course, I, um, you probably heard it too. There was a fascinating exchange between the two of them the first time the, on eighteen on the playoff hole, uh, where you quite clearly heard Stevie say to Adam Scott, "No, that's not the shot. That is not the shot to hit." It, I always find that quite flummoxing. You imagine that the relationship between caddy and player would be that the, the caddy kind of really should just agree with the boss. He's just not like that, is he? And it's it's a bit confronting when you see it. Telling Adam Scott that's not the shot, that takes some kahunas, doesn't it? Well, that's what Ray Floyd said. He said he won't choke. He, he, you know, If he thinks it's a high draw for the front left pin and, and Adam's thinking a low cut, that's not the right shot, Adam. It's a high draw mm. or whatever it happens to be, whether it's a 7-iron or an 8-iron or whatever. It's like, no, this is what I think it is, and that's what he's getting paid for. He's not being paid to be a yes man. No. Uh, Shaq, in answer to your question, from what I've seen, I haven't seen too many I haven't seen too many interviews with Stevie. Uh, he may have taken something from the Firestone incident, which I think maybe caught him off guard a bit when he kind of lost his head and said some things he probably shouldn't have. I wonder whether he might be keeping a low profile for a change, Shaq. Do you think well, there's any chance of that? He picked up his phone for Brian Wacker of PGATour.com, and I believe Doug Ferguson also spoke to him. Again, I, I've been meaning to go and, and look those comments up, but I would check out PGATour.com or, uh, or or Google Doug Ferguson and Steve Williams. And I, I, I do believe he answered the phone and was uh, uh, helpful with some details to them and talked a little bit about this because uh, that was that was a pretty amazing discussion that, that he said uh, – 
that that's that Scott admitted to, and uh, and just yeah, that's the other thing that's so fun, and and, and is his humility and all this. So the way he credited Norman in the, the in the, in Butler cabin and gave uh, Stevie full credit, and I, I don't want to pick on Tiger, but it's we're we're so used to to a certain players, and it's not just Tiger, but some of the big egos uh, having trouble really being a healthy ego and and giving out credit. And so that's just another reason why Scott. Was, is such a refreshing winner uh, that here's a guy who has every reason in the world to be mm. incredibly cocky, yes. uh, and and he is just the he's just not he's he's confident, oh. but he's not uh, he's but he's a gentleman. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was interesting to also hear Shaq. I thought it was refreshing as one of your readers pointed out on the website to hear Jason Day admit that he felt the pressure in his post round. Interview. You don't hear that too often either, do you? He said quite clearly, obviously felt the pressure on 16 and 17. They were the two bogeys that cost him a chance at the playoff or, or perhaps the tournament. But th- that was kind of refreshing as well, wasn't it, to, to hear that? It, yeah, it's something about the Masters. Uh, the players get out of their their uh, their mode that they are in week to week on the tour. And something about the, the place humbles them and, and uh, makes them more emotional and, and honest. And, uh, and that's fitting. So I... Uh, I, uh, but again, I, 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 I just, uh, I think it's all about Adam and I, I'd be curious. The other thing I'm, I'm interested in hearing from you guys is, is a little bit more about, I know you, you said it got football off the, 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 the pages and that's sort of what we have here. We have the same nonsense when the NFL's, uh, uh, going and it's, it's nothing can stop it. Even some stupid injury that we have to obsess about, but <laughs> I'd just be curious what, what uh, what kind of things have you seen in terms of media coverage or or uh, uh, people discussing this uh, uh, and 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 how it kind of plays in the the history of sport there? Well, that uh, there was a delightful package on a, a pretty popular nighttime program we have here called the Project TV. I don't know whether you saw, saw that tonight, Clates. It was uh, it was really nicely done, and they had a bit of a bit of fun with it. I didn't actually get it. I mean, I know he's going to be on the Today Show tomorrow morning we don't have a letterman or the equivalent of what you've got over there uh shack will be interested to see if he turns up on letterman actually but he's going to be on the today show tomorrow but it's just been kind of one of those things hasn't it clates where it's been the main news story of the day certainly as far as sport goes well it opened the national news in melbourne on all three channels it it was the first story i mean adam scott wins the masters at you know seven o'clock the abc news came on and it was adam scott i mean i've had some i was on the Peter Wilkins show tonight on the ABC. I'm going in there in the morning to the radio. I've had four people ring up and ask me to write articles about it. I mean, just just me. I mean, it's, it's been crazy how much people want to know about it and want to talk about it. And so, so, so I mean, it's a huge deal down here, Jeff. You can't imagine how big this thing is down here. So, yeah. It's like for us winning the America's Cup or winning the Tour de France or. Kathy Freeman, perhaps at the Olympics, or you know, it's that big for us, really. That's that's the terms it's been captured. Every mm. journal who's written about it wow. has said it's 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 the equivalent of this. Clay, so I'm just struggling to remember back in '06 when Jeff won the U.S. Open. I seem to recall being quite flummoxed by the lack of exposure yeah. that got. Yeah. And why do yeah. you think the difference is it the Masters? Is it Scott? What about this makes it the more appealing news story? Do you think? Oh, I think the Masters. I think the story of Adam. I think you know what happened at the Open last year, but. I think it's the masters and the fact that we haven't won it. You know, I think perhaps we took what Jeff did for granted when we've had, I mean, had two guys win the US Open in a hundred and whatever years. And, you know, we've won obviously relatively quite a few British Open. So that's, you know, they're big, but they're not, you know, this thing was like, as I said, it was the, it was the one holy grail of sport that we'd never, 
never conquered. So that was, I think that was why it was such a big story. And I think because Adam's such a popular guy. And and people people outside of golf don't know who Jeff is. I mean, I've been on airplanes with Jeff and no one even turns around. Adam, if, if Adam walked on an airplane, everyone would know who he was. He's a much more recognizable face in Australia. And I don't, I don't want to say more popular, but he's just better known. And Well, he's, well, yeah, he's the and, full and, package, and, isn't he? He dates well, the supermodels and the high-profile yeah, tennis stars, yeah. and he's, he's got all yeah. that. Not that he's ever been involved in a controversy, but he's got all that other stuff that goes on outside. I was quite confronted. I don't know about you, Shaq, but following Twitter today, the number of women who are on Twitter really, and if it had been men saying the same things about women, it would have been quite politically incorrect. He's quite the sex <laughs> symbol, Adam Scott, it would seem. He might not be safe walking around in America there. Well, let's be honest. Uh, the game needs anything it can get right now. And if there are more women watching golf and inspired to play golf because they love to look at Adam Scott, we'll take it. We're, yeah. we're, we'll take anybody who – any way to get more people excited about the sport exactly. is, is fine. Um, uh, one other thing I wanted to ask about. Uh, early in the week, I got to meet Phil Scott. At the uh, the Sattlers had him at the uh, the function they they hosted here and uh, the the, uh, the 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 family behind Barnbugle Dunes, Clates uh, he talked about him after the round. What 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 can you talk about his uh, influence on on Adam's uh, career and just what you know about him? Uh, Phil, not a lot. I, I mean, I know Phil. He was a pro in Adelaide, who obviously married Adam's mum and moved to Queensland and. Um, uh, you know, Phil was—he was just a club pro in Adelaide, so I—I I didn't really know him at all. He moved to Queensland, lived at Sanctuary Cove. I've met his mum a few times. Uh, we fair to say I think Adam was much more like his mother than he, than his dad really. Uh, and his mother's a charming person, terrific, great fun to talk to. Not that Phil isn't, but I have a great affection for his mum. I always found her terrific to talk to and great fun. And uh, I think he's very much like his mother, mm. M- much more so than his father, I would say. Mm. She was. Uh, she, I saw just some short clips of her on the news, Clayton. I've never encountered Mrs. Scott. I've interviewed Adam once or twice over his career, not for a, some time now, but uh, she just looked very pleased. But she was very similarly articulate. Shaq, one of your readers yeah. pointed out it was nice to hear a golfer who who could complete yeah. a sentence, <laughs> which yeah. was kind of true, isn't it? It was nice to hear Adam speak because he was very eloquent. You know, everyone should go to the Masters website and have a look at his press conference because it was fantastic, wasn't it? No ums and ums. Well, especially, or... yeah, usually even the, even the best talkers are, are – just babbling messes in those masters press conferences. And and he was, uh, well, the, the Craig Healy, the member that was introducing the press conference was more choked up. And, <laughs> and I mean, Adam was not, it wasn't that he wasn't enjoying it. He, he but he's just such a steady mm. presence. And, uh, and he probably, I think he kind of dreads doing those kinds of things. Uh, but obviously yesterday he didn't care. He was, he was quite happy. He was, uh, he was eloquent. He was, Obviously, struggling for certain details just because the whole thing is so overwhelming. You're sitting there in the green jacket, um, and uh, and I was the one who asked. And maybe you guys could shed a little bit more light on this because we Americans are oblivious to these kinds of things. But I was I was the one who asked what it was he was mouthing on on 18 because he it was just so unlike him to just break out into this this reaction and and to say something. And so uh, so what's this? Come on, Aussie thing about oh, clates do you want to take that one is, is it is it, is it is it a sore subject no it's not no, it's not it was an advertising campaign for for cricket ah. world series cricket way back when, ah. when cricket sort of split uh we had a television station owner down here called kerry packer who decided that that cricket needed right. some jazzing up and the it'd be kind of like uh introducing 2020 golf you know <laughs> he decided yeah. that they needed a rev they didn't agree so he decided he'd put something on and then we had the whole come on aussie come on 
campaign, which was the song I noticed you posted it on the website there. I don't know about you, Clates, but I don't find that that sort of jingoism is uh, is not my preference. Uh, that wouldn't be my first thing. But it was a it was interesting to see Adam scream that out, wasn't it? That that come on Aussie thing with the the fist bump. Very unlike him, Clates. Very unlike him. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen him. He's just always been calm, and you know, I've never seen him show anything close to that emotion, which no. obviously showed how big of a deal it was for Indeed. him. Competitively, Clates, and I wanted to ask you about this. He, he he must have said it four or five times in the couple of interviews I've seen. The word belief kept coming up, and he talked. He was asked about the opener with him, and he said at the time, it's given me the belief, even though he didn't win, that he now had the belief that he could win. The importance of that as a competitor, he's obviously had all the physical tools for a long time, and that's why we're kind of surprised, but that belief you've played golf at the highest level and with guys at the highest level. Is that just, is that the only real difference? The genuine belief that you can do it, not just telling yourself you can do it, but really believing that you can actually do it. Well, I think it's more about believing that you're not that you can do it, but that you're better than the other guys. I mean, you know, at every level of golf, you kind of know where you sit. I knew when I played in the British open, I wasn't not, I'd never chance to win because those other guys were so much better. But I mean, Adam just must. I mean, he's obviously the guy hitting all the shots. He's seen every shot he's ever hit. If you can't believe in ball striking that good, what can you believe in? I mean, mm. I watched him play at Kingston Heath last year, and I wrote about it at the time. I thought it was one of the most beautiful tournaments I'd ever seen anyone play. He, he swung so beautifully. He hit such amazing shots. It was such, and it was such a great golf course to do it on. So mm. it all kind of melted together. So, so I mean, if you can't believe in that, what can you believe in? Mm. I was staggered to hear, Clates, I'm not sure whether you, you heard or saw this quote, but he talked about the putt on 18 and having seen other players make it over the years, and he said O'Meara sprang to mind. He he made that putt in 98 to win. And then he said, you know, he just kind of just let it go and just sort of hit it out there somewhere. There was no, you know, the, the whole mechanical engineering precision of, you know, it's got to go this far, break that much. I was really interested to hear that. It must, I would think it must be incredibly difficult at a moment like that to just kind of throw out all the, the technology and the aim point and the, the want to, to really die and just go, yeah, just feel that it, whack it out there somewhere and it should go in. I thought that was in, extraordinary. Does that make sense to you as a golfer? Is, is that how you play your best golf when you kind of let it go like that? Well, absolutely. Yeah, there was a friend of mine, Chris Moody, who played in Europe, who was always, he was really big on just just hit it out there and, fit, and he was a terrific putter. But I think that uh, in situations like that, who knows what takes over? Mm. You know, it's easy to watch on TV and wonder what's going through. He said, I mean, the guy's in the zone. He's in the moment. He's just – he's almost not doing it himself. It's just happening. And and I suspect that's what happened. He just – it just happened, mm. you know. People ask what's going through his mind. It's quite possible there was nothing going through his mind, mm. as, you, as you say, Clates. Shaq, just to come back to Cabrera for a moment, what a staggering performance for him to stand in the fairway at 18 in regulation and watch Scott hold that putt and all the histrionics that went with it and it was an extraordinary – to step up and then just, you know – gently smash a nine iron three feet from the flag to make birdie and force the playoff. It was just extraordinary stuff, wasn't it? It was. And we, we, we didn't see many good shots in 18 uh, really all day. Uh, and, and I have the monitor so I could actually watch different holes. And that was one of them. And nobody was really hitting that iron shot very well. And, and, and uh, I have to think he was a little bit motivated watching Adam's uh, reaction down in the fairway. And that, that probably just made it a little bit more, more enjoyable for him to do that. 269, ranked 269 in the world coming into the week. Um, what happens? How does that, how does that happen? Is he, is he the Augusta specialist? I mean, he's sure. What, what's going on there? Nothing to suggest. Well, we've seen this. Clates, Clates has been watching this longer than I have. We've seen this with Augusta. It just seems to bring out 
Uh, I mean, look at Bernard Longer yesterday. The mm-hmm. man was, uh, uh, I believe he got to five under at yeah. one point. Three under, three, uh, three Just hole. stunning. <laughs> That's, but it's, he knows the place. There's, there's, uh, for all the complaining that some of the uh, past champions did this week about the, 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 the slowness of the course and the lack of local knowledge being rewarded, there still is, there is still a lot of local knowledge that, uh, that these old guys uh, have and, and are able to put to use and, uh, the uh, for Cabrera, it's just it's just his kind of golf. Be able to play aggressively and and relax. And he uh, obviously uh, the the dreaded the holes uh, fit his eye comment uh, that we always hear players is, but it, it, there is truth to it. Mm. He's uh, he's kind of that fast and loose. Just one of the best lines of the week, Shaq. I think you'll like this. I was following Stephanie Way on Twitter. She was watching the tournament with a friend of hers who knows nothing about golf. And another friend of hers who was just kind of there along for the ride. And the friend who knows nothing about golf asked about Fred Couples. <laughs> and Way's other mm. friend said, he's the George Clooney of golf. Oh. Is, that the be- <laughs> is that the best and most apt description you've ever heard for Fred Couples? He is the George Clooney of golf. What a, another stunning performance by him this week and Horses for Courses. Gents, we never get yep. together without talking about distance. And Shaq, I know that... Uh, you, uh, you've had a look over some things. I, I listened to the press conference with Adam Scott, and he talked about the clubs he hit. I think uh, Mike Uran from the FU podcast, who got very excited because we mentioned him on the show last week. So hope you're excited again, Mike. Enjoyed your show. But he's asked a couple of times on Twitter or pointed out a couple of times on Twitter the, the, the tee shot that Angel hit in the playoff off the 10th, the second playoff hole, the 10th hole, an iron, which he, I assume, was a two-iron hit down there, pretty much in line with where Adam Scott had hit his three-wood. Talk a little bit about the distances we saw. It was a wet week this week, and we just said, Cabrera hit nine iron into the 18th, which was lengthened by, what, 60 yards 10 years ago because they were hitting wedges in there. Tell us about some of the, the distance issues befuddling the game at Augusta this week, Shaq. Well, they do everything in their power to make the course play as long as possible. Uh, the, the fairways are not cut as tight as they, they could be cut, not even close. And this the grain makes a huge difference, as you see, that, this, that they create by mowing towards the tees and slowing down the drives. So you just rarely see drives bounding down the fairway like those drives did in the 86 Masters and on the 15th hole. We all kind of remember watching drives just, just rolling over those bumps and, and going and going. And and so even with that, they all carry the ball so far. I mean, the 8th hole, they've lengthened, they've extended the bunker, and now you're watching guys even like Cabrera who can, who can nail one and just carry that bunker, which is a 300 and Stevie Williams was telling one of the one of the uh, marshals or whatever the euphemism for him at, at Augusta. Uh, the guy asked him; he was just kind of forecatting uh, off the seventh green, and he said, well, "What is it to carry the bunker?" And he was very nice about it. And he he goes, "I don't know." And then he pulled out his book, and he said it was three fifteen. And then we watched everybody's drive, and Adam just nailed one and just got it past uh, the bunker. This was earlier in the week, so they they just carry the ball so far, and, and the course is already after all that lengthening. Uh, pretty much at its, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's at its max in terms of where they can go. I'm sure there's a few places they can find, but, uh, they are, uh, well, again, I'll, you're going to just have to see this breakdown of Adam's round. It's, it's, uh, stunning to see three wood, nine iron to some of these, these, uh, 500 yard holes. It's, it's amazing. Clates, is that the main difference? Is it the, is it the distance the players carry the ball, particularly with the driver, compared to say twenty or thirty? I know the ball is different, doesn't spin as much, but but is it that they can just smash it high and straight, and it just carries forever? Is that what really changes the nature of the way the game's played? Yeah, my observation is that that's what happens. I mean, I played with 
you know, kids down here, Todd Sinnott, who's one of the best amateurs down here, I mean, just hits at 183 mile an hour ball speed and the thing goes forever. So there's just a generation of kids who are playing with these light shafts, long clubs, massive heads, balls that go straight. They just, and, and, and you have to be able to power the ball a long way now. So they're in the gym and they're, there's a kid who actually plays for James Hurd, Brendan Goddard, who's a manager of Jeff Ogilvie's. Dale Lynn said to me the other day, he said, to explain to me why Brendan Goddard, who's an AFL footballer, hits the ball 40 yards past Jeff Ogilvie. It's because he's been, he said, it's because he's been in the gym since he was 16 years old. He's a massively strong athlete. Give him a decent golf swing and, a, and a, one of these clubs. And, and Brendan hits the ball forever. He's a scratch or one, I think. Yeah, 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 he's yeah, a good yeah, player, he, really good player. He, loves his it, golf, which is... Yeah. Which is uh, which is great. What does that do to the course, though, Shaq? Which have, uh, sorry, not Shaq Clates, which is obviously your specific area of interest to, to Augusta National itself. We've seen them do all the length there, and now we're back to where we were at 2002. I mean, I remember watching David Javal hit a sand wedge into the 18th and 10 or 12 years ago, and that was considered um, you know, a crime, so the course had to be lengthened. It's now been lengthened. We just watched in the wet, in the dark, a 43-year-old man hit a 9-iron into the 18th green, so... We seem to be back where we started. What does it do to the course? I mean, where do you, where do you go from here then? Well, well, there's only one way to go. That's to fix the ball. Mm. You can't keep, as Jeff said, you can't keep moving tees further and further back. So at some point you have to control how far the ball goes. And, of course, no one's game to make a step in that direction yet. But at some point they're going to have to. Otherwise it's – and they made the statement – 10 or whatever years ago that if there's a significant increase in the next however many years, we'll do something about it. Well, you know, at what point do they actually hold to their word and actually do something about it? Mm. Well, statistics, we'd let's not talk about statistics, of course. What what does happen, Shaq, is the 7th and 11th holes at Augusta now, doesn't it? That's that's one of the things that happens with lengthening and narrowing to, to try and control it. You've got two holes that play completely differently to the way they're supposed to, both those, the, well, the 7th and 11th. Yeah, it's 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 that, but also when you when you realize the things they do to slow things down, it just changes the nature of the way the game's played. The the lack of role is what what uh, Mickelson, uh, Bubba Watson really uh, went on a rant Friday afternoon after his round. I kind of walked into it when he was doing it, and he was talking about the same thing that that Mickelson was lamenting that the not just the greens were were a little bit slower this year. But the course is just slower. I don't mind the greens being slowed down a little bit. And the players felt like that was to use some new hole locations. But those new hole locations they used were, I mean, the fourth hole Saturday was one of the worst-looking hole locations I've ever seen. You know, you just look at a hole and you say, how does that look? Does that look good? Is this for a golfer? Does this look like a shot that you can even possibly try? You really couldn't even imagine and visualize a shot to it. It was so far to the right of the green mm. and so goofy-looking. And... So they, they, a lot of the players believe they slowed the greens down to be able to use some new hole locations that were just tucked in white places. I couldn't even believe on number one, number two, on and on. And so that's the kind of stuff that throws things out of rhythm a little bit. And thankfully, the last day, they really put the, the holes in spots where uh, a good aggressive player can, can play. But, but this reaction and the other things they do, slowing down the course so, so the ball stay more in play, all those little uh, elements that are an offshoot of this – I don't care if Adam hits a bunch of nine irons in on the back nine. What I care about is if the course is playing kind of soft and slow and, and not on, its, on a certain edge that, that, that is more dramatic and more of a test of skill. Mm. Was the Masters more interesting 20 years ago, Clates, to watch? 
Uh, well, the finishes were always exciting, apart from those odd years they had in the middle, you know, Emmerman years and Mike Weir and that sort of middle of the last decade. The Masters has always been great to watch them. I love watching it in the 80s when Langer was winning and Stadler and Nicholas and Norman, obviously, and Seve. And, I, mean, I mean, I didn't play, so it's hard to tell how much different it was and is, but in the end it comes down to the, you know, the cliched back nine and the, the, you know, the great finishes they always have. But, you know, the, I mean, the course last year just looked massively long to me, which, going off the topic, makes what that Chinese kid is staggering, I thought, to mm. make the cut. I thought it was one of the great performances. Well, really. I was I was going to ask you about that because apart from the controversial slow play ruling, which I thought was interesting in itself. Sorry, Shaq. Did you? Well, I'm not ask Clates what he thinks of this. I probably because I got nobody to agree with me at at, at Augusta. But I, I I have he he's he was hideously slow. He got he got two more uh, times on Saturday. Okay, I he's slow. We don't defend slow play. I have a real problem with with somebody who's fourteen year, years old being put on this stage. I just think it's I think it's wrong, and I, I think there should be an age limit uh, to play in in these kinds of big time golf events. At least sixteen. I just this is frightening. I don't see how this ends well. It's never worked for tennis, um, and I'm just curious, Clates, what you think about about his age and putting him in this uh, in this position. Well, I, I think it worked out okay. I think if he'd done what I thought he was going to do and not break 80 twice, then I think that would have been uh, – and mm. people, I assume, were fearful he would shoot in the mid-80s. As short yeah. as he hit it at the Australian Open last year, and as long as that golf course is, I think everyone feared that he would just completely embarrass himself. But it was an extraordinary performance. But I, I think that's right. I, I think it's way too young to be out there under that pressure. And you know, I'm staggered that – Anyone can be good enough to play that at 14, which is a comment on the equipment which lets kids hit the ball long enough to compete. How many hybrids was he carrying? Shaq, I didn't uh, see, but he seemed to I didn't a, look. He hit an awful lot. Of, every time you saw him hitting an approach yeah. to a green, it was with yeah. a, a, a hybrid club. Yeah, I followed him with Crenshaw in the uh, um, practice round and then also in the uh, in the tournament. And he, he wasn't much past Ben, and Ben is... Is uh, de- let's just say he's not as long as he used to be. No, <laughs> he was he was never particularly long to uh, to start with. What did you make of the so the slow play, Shaq? It threatened to turn into an international incident there for a while until we had the Tiger incident, which we'll come to in a moment, which blew it out yeah. of the water. But what was your take on that? There was an awful lot of um, finger pointing that you know they'd singled this kid out because he was he was safe to issue a slow play warning, and that would be a warning to the rest of the field. Do you think that was true, or is he just so painfully slow no. that he needed? No, he just. He really, truly was that painfully slow. And more importantly, I mean, a lot, uh, there were players out there who probably are just as slow as he is. Jim Furyk, Jason Day, they're just, they're just awful to watch. I, I watched them quite a bit. Every time I stumbled on them, I, I had to watch Brant Snedeker play with Furyk. And you feel sorry for Snedeker. You just say, are you kidding? Here's a guy who plays at a nice, nice, normal pace like Cabrera. I mean, he must have been in heaven with Cabrera other than the fact they had to wait all day. Those two just play golf at the right mm. pace. They, they 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 don't rush, but you know, and you watch some of these people, and so so when you see that I came in from the course, I had no idea what had happened, and so when I found out, I thought, well, I had just come from watching these guys just take forever, and then when it was explained to me how many times he'd been warned, and and again, this is, he had a caddy that I believe was a club caddy who's probably not used to the system and the everyday tour player knows how to speed up when they have to speed up and Guan just didn't even make an effort. And that's, uh, uh, I don't 
know if that's his uh, if an arrogance or just his just kind of uh, immaturity. Yeah, you're not a you're not so perturbed by the slow play. If I call are you Clates, you don't think it's the greatest problem facing the game that. Does it really matter in professional golf in particular? I might have some empathy for that point of view too, I suspect, in some yeah. ways. I mean, slow play for me was is going to St Andrews Beach, a public course near here, playing in a two ball and getting stuck behind a field in golf carts and two people play, taking five and a half hours to play golf. That's slow play. I don't care so much about the tour where you turn a four and a half hour round into a five and a half hour round. It's when you turn a two and a half round. It's when you turn a two and a half hour round into a five and a half hour round because you're on a public course and it's a nightmare. So, but Jeff's right. The, the, the tours, I mean, Nicholas was probably the star of it or Carrie Middlecoff, but in Australia, Peter Fowler, Noel Ratcliffe, Vaughan Summers, Bernard Langer in Europe, Nick Fowler was never fast, Greg Norman was slow. Now it's Jason Day, it was Glenn Day, it was, now it's this Chinese kid. So, so, it's, so it's something that no one's ever done a very good job of stamping out. And... Because every pro knows how to play the game. Bernard Langer had two routines. He would take a minute to play every shot. Bernard, you're on the clock. He took 35 seconds. This kid either didn't know or didn't understand that if you're on the clock and you have a bad time, you better hit it inside 35 seconds. Otherwise, you know, if you go 36 or 30, I don't know how long, how far over he went. But John Paramore is a pretty fair guy, and he's not going to. He would understand that this is going to be controversial if I whack this kid. So he was clearly a long way over his whatever, you know, his 35 seconds or 40 seconds that he was allowed. Whack any player in a major is going to be controversial, isn't it, for slow play? Because it never happens. It's, it's you know, man well, bites dog well, stuff. Well, because the players know how to play the game. Exactly. Yeah, no doubt about that. And there was plenty of slow play the following day. I think it was the day group on Saturday was a hole and a half behind by the time the day was over. The one thing, the one great thing that Augusta National will be very happy about, I suspect, Shaq, is that, I, the, that the Adam Scott win, or certainly in this part of the world, has overshadowed and stopped most people down in this part of the world talking about the Tiger Woods incident, the ruling. Uh, what was your take on what happened there? Of course, he, no doubt he took an improper drop but uh, and signed an incorrect scorecard, but unusually was not disqualified from the tournament, was allowed to, to play on the weekend. What was your take? It's extremely controversial, this one. Yeah, I've written about this for Golf World uh, for this week and a little bit about the incident, a little bit about the... Uh, the, the butting of heads of the people in the rules world and, and how this uh, just, just added to some of the tension there. And for me, the whole thing comes down to uh, it was just a massive blunder by uh, Fred Ridley, who was tipped off via one of his officials uh, that, that something was amiss. He looked at the video, and it's now become, uh, as I quote in my story, David Fay is quoted saying, it's, it's rules 101. If there's any question, you do not let the players sign their card. You bring them in, you look at the video, and you discuss it. And and the tour does this so much more often than I think we even know. And it's become it's a very simple thing to do now with DVRs and and technology, and and it can avoid embarrassment. And they simply did not do that. Why he did not do that, I don't know. They got very lucky. What he did may or may not set a dreadful precedent with this Rule 33-7, but uh, it could have been avoided had he just simply done what what uh, the PGA Tour and other, other events where they have television have been doing, which is just don't let him sign a card, bring him in, and take a look at it. Mm. Clayton, you would have played your entire high-level amateur and professional career under the belief that if you signed an incorrect scorecard, you'd be going home. Um, how did this sit with you? 
Well, you still are, I assume. I mean, Nick Faldo started talking about new rules. I don't really know the facts, but someone posted the examples of specific instances where you could waive the rule. One was if a player moved a couple of grains of sand in a bunker and he couldn't reasonably have known and it came to light through high-speed video camera. Or a player double hits the ball and he couldn't reasonably have known but it came to light through through the, a, a high-speed camera. Or a player bumped a ball with his finger and on the putting green, putting it down to mark. He thought the ball had rolled back because the logo was in the same spot. The high-speed camera showed the ball had moved. So they were the examples they gave of when this rule could be applied. Not when someone just blatantly took an incorrect drop, hmm. which is I mean, that seemed to me what happened. Well, well, uh, okay. This is what I we this is what has to be explained. And and CBS uh, still had this wrong on Saturday. Tiger still had this wrong. Mm-hmm. Tiger still did not know why he was saved. And so we have Rule thirty three seven, which has been around forever. And then there's Decision thirty three seven slash four point five, which was the Harrington rule. And that is the, the high-def video uh, uh, clause that, that allows them to go back and undo a disqualification if something is seen on video that, that otherwise the player would not known, have known of. In this case, uh, Ridley, uh, and he's entitled to do this, it's just that it was unprecedented, invoked 33-7, not the Harrington decision, uh, to undo this disqualification. And, and within the rules, he was allowed to do that. What the rulemaking community is upset about is that is is the precedent, and and this notion that uh, more the the appearance that to the outside world the rules of golf look complicated, bizarre, maybe even kind of uh, an element of making it up as they go uh, to protect a, a famous player because that is the ultimate reaction is that Tiger got a break because he's Tiger, but the reality, not the rules. Sorry, sorry. not doesn't the rule say that you, a disqualification can't be waived if the player, through his own ignorance, breaks a rule? Isn't that what it that's, says? That's part of the 33.7 slash 4.5. Yeah. That is very explicitly stated. That's not what was used here. 33.7 is more, is more vague. But do, okay. As, as I understand it, Shaq, I'm pretty sure this is – this is how it works. So 33.7 says that in exceptional circumstances, the, the, the penalty of disqualification can be waived. And Correct. The, the exceptional circumstances that Fred Ridley has painted are that Tiger took an improper drop, somebody rang in while Tiger was still on the course that day, yeah. the committee looked at the video and determined that he did not take an improper drop, so he signed his card. After the card had been handed in, he went and gave an interview to television where he said, I backed up two yards from where I hit the first shot, and then the committee was alerted that they might have a problem. So they looked at it again, and their eventual decision was they made a mistake that he should not be penalised for, and that that was the exceptional circumstance. So they handed down the penalty he should have got in the first place, which was two shots for the incorrect drop, but they waived the disqualification because the major mistake was theirs and not his. That. That's how I understand that they've done that. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. They essentially admitted they screwed up, and so therefore, because they, in their review, did not detect what was pretty obviously a violation, mm-hmm. uh, they they uh, they fell on their sword. And and um, it, it it again, it it ultimately was probably the right thing to do uh, the way they did it, but it's it certainly is. Uh, 
it's it's disturbing that they they didn't get this uh, right the first time because it wasn't like it was just somebody off the street. It was somebody in the rules community calling a fellow official and uh, saying, "Hey, this this looks bad." And 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 most of the people who who really know the rules uh, knew it was bad. And and it also is a product of the club. And I, I get into this in my story of of their obsession with keeping things very clean inside the ropes, which we love because it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful looking tournament on the planet. The problem is that a walking official probably would have saved Tiger when he said, well, now I can go back as far as I want, or I can go back two yards. And the official said, no, you, you need to drop it on the, uh, as near as possible to the, to this divot. I think that the real problem, and I think this is what in the, in the real golf rules community, and it's a whole subculture shack, as you know, yes. there seems to be some question about whether you can both waive the disqualification and add on the two shot penalty. I'm not sure yes. if that's ever been done. There's, there's some question about whether that is actually uh, can be done, but that is, as you say, what they did. It's all done uh, done and dusted now. Uh, I think that's just about it for me, Clay. There's a thousand more things that I'd like to talk about. Obviously, Actually, I will ask you about this, Clay, because I, I meant to. We've talked about Adam Scott, of course, because he won, which is amazing. But what about the performance of the other Australians in the field? Jason Day, uh, another extraordinary. But I thought Mark Leishman for mine, Clay's. Was Lisham probably was, the most impressive performance. Yeah, he was terrific. He was a good amateur in Victoria who came a little after Badley and Ogilvy, so he got lost in that. It was, it was they were the two that got the attention. He was a few years later. There was a there were a bunch of kids who were pretty good players. He was just another one of those kids who who was a good player who was, and he turned pro and he started to play some really good golf and he you know he got a card in America and. I don't think, you know, he wasn't heralded like Badley and Ogilvy were and before them Appleby and Allenby, but he um, he's turned into a fantastic player and he played a tremendous tournament. Really only he knocked it in the water at 15 and that was the end of him, but he, he hung there all week and he's a, a kind of long, kind of loose smasher who, he, he grew up at Warrnambool, which is a seaside town, uh, blows a hurricane every day, so uh, clearly a good player in the wind. And just a laid-back kid who plays well. Interesting. So, so yeah, a, a great week for him. Rookie of the year on the PGA Tour in 2009. Barely rated a blip or a mention down here in Australia. It's it's funny how this yeah. works, this stuff, isn't it, Clates? You know, Jeff wins the US Open, virtually nothing said. Adam Scott wins the Masters and yeah. Australia stops for a day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Mark Leishman could win. I mean, Mark Leishman could go to an AFL football game this weekend and no one would recognise it. <laughs> no, and he could probably step yeah. on the field. He's a big lad too. Yeah. And he does he does give it a ride. I thought it was very impressive, Shaq, that you, you often see the first-round leader at the Masters is a is a, an unknown, for want of a better term, and they kind of disappear by Saturday, which Sergio Garcia uh, kind of did after co-leading on Thursday. Leishman to hang around for four days. That's pretty impressive and just your second Masters, I thought. Yeah, that's what we kept pointing out in the press center was that uh, we kept waiting for him to go away and he didn't and he was right there to the end and uh i just saw uh one of the, the, the again I, lo- I love to look at the photos for some reason the next morning so the first thing before we were ready, waiting to start the show was uh, I, I saw a great shot normally you would you would as a photographer you'd get really annoyed because there's adam gives this great reaction on 18 and there's the player he's playing with behind him and it would be that otherwise beautiful clean backdrop but there's leishman giving a kind of a fist pump himself. And so it's at one time the photographer can kind of forgive uh, the the guy for messing up his shot because uh, how great is that to see the guy playing with him, 
I uh, just as excited for for Adam. That is just uh, that's just fantastic right. stuff. Uh, just yeah, that whole last half hour was just full of wonderful sportsmanship, wasn't it, Shaq? It was it was it everything was. that's great about golf. And it was similar a couple of years ago when Day and Scott finished second and pushed each other for the last few holes, and they had some yep. some similar sort of reactions on the last round. I must say uh, another rap to Cabrera. His response when when Scott made the putt to win it, I thought was fabulous. It was almost fatherly. It looked to me, yeah, Shaq, the way well, he he's. Sort of, he, he is a grandfather. Uh, we, we almost had a grandfather win the Masters yesterday, which uh, still I'm trying to wrap my head around. <laughs> it's, uh, he must have been a young starter. What is he, 43? And he's already got grandkids? That's, yeah. Uh, or, his, or his kids were young starters. Well, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, more importantly, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Sorry, Clayson, were, were you saying something? No. I was going to say what we need to do is um, – Getting him down to Royal Melbourne to play the Australian Masters, he, he would play well in that course. Well, It'd be fun he, to watch. Wouldn't it be a fantastic? Because he is that sort of flamboyant, that yeah. that kind of South American Latin player. You know, they've got that wonderful way of just sort of get up and smash it, go find it, and smash it again. Steve Senzo played down here quite a bit, but we haven't seen any of them since. Really, Eduardo Romero never played here, uh, except in the World Cup, perhaps, and. And Santo Fernandez hardly at all, but so it would be good to see one of them come down. I suspect it's kind of at places where they have probably have some tournaments in Argentina at that time of the year. But it would be great to watch see him play Royal Melbourne. Yeah, he'd be more, he'd be a more popular visitor than Larry Mize was in the late eighties and early nineties, would he not, Clates? We'd welcome right. him. He's almost an adopted Australian, I think. Well, well, he'd be more interesting to watch. Yeah, that's very true, and possibly to listen to. Fellas, it's been absolutely fantastic. This is one I'm sure we're going to be talking about for a while, particularly that Tiger Woods ruling. I don't think we've heard the last about that no. for quite some time. But fabulous to catch up with you both. Shaq, really appreciate you getting out of bed and having a chat. I was looking forward to reading all the material on your site, which will no doubt come over the next couple of days, but uh, terrific to catch up with you today. My pleasure. It's a great day for the game. Yeah, it is a great day for the game. I agree with you there. And, Clates, it's always fabulous to catch up with you. Really enjoyed that piece in The Age, mate, so congratulations on that. Uh And I look forward to listening to you on some other radio shows around the place tomorrow by the sound of it. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Terrific. And that's it for State of the Game, Episode 20. Do, uh, Do hope that you've enjoyed it. We'll be back to do it all again at some point in the next couple of weeks here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.